Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Faith on the Go podcast, where we will revisit this last Sunday's readings, the gospel, and sermon from Pastor John Norquist. If you like this podcast, please like and follow our channel to get new audio episodes added weekly. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy Faith on the Go. This week's service is from Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. The first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 14. In a time of drought, the people pray for mercy, repenting of their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They appeal to God to remember the covenant, to show forth God's power, and to heal their land by sending life-giving rain. Although our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. Our apostasies indeed are many, and we have sinned against you, O hope of Israel, its savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler turning aside for the night? Why should you be like someone confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot give help? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. Thus says the Lord concerning his people, truly, They have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Have you completely rejected Judah? Does your heart loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace but find no good for a time of healing, but there is a terror instead. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for our name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Can any idols of the nations bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for it is you who do all of this. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Timothy. The conclusion of this letter to a young minister offers a final perspective on life from one who faced death. Though others let him down, Paul was sure of his faith in the Lord, who stood by him and lent him strength. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. 
But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 18. The coming reign of God will involve unexpected reversals of fortune with judgment rooted in mercy. Jesus tells a parable in which the one who humbles himself is exalted and the one who exalts his own righteousness is humbled. And now here's Pastor John with the Gospel and Sermon. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. And I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, thank you for the gift of this day, for the beauty of the rising sun, uh, the colors that surround us, the wonder of your creation, the changing of seasons, and signs of your faithfulness throughout. May our lives reflect your great love. Come afresh to your church throughout the world and here in this place as your people gather together around your word of life. Help us to hear you, to listen, and to find our strength in your great love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, let the church say, Amen. I want to start off with the opening line from our psalm today. How dear to me is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts. And then I want to begin with a question for you. Church, where is God's dwelling? Where is God's dwelling? Today's psalm highlighted pilgrims on their way to Mount Zion, traveling through valleys and over heights to worship in the Jerusalem temple. The temple also appeared in Jesus' parable of two men who went there to pray. Although God could never be contained in a building, it was understood as the place, 
the temple was understood as the place that God had chosen to dwell through the worship life of ancient Israel. And yet, the biblical story complicates things, revealing a God who never asked for a temple and a people who continually neglect their side of the relationship that God had established with them. The temple in Jesus' time reflected centuries of struggle as previous ones had been ruined and God's people driven away into exile. And even this temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, never to be built again. We have our own ideas about where God must dwell, from church buildings to golf courses. I don't know if anybody finds God on the golf course. I, yeah. To maybe some otherworldly realm, some mysterious kind of otherworldly place. But the same complications trouble us. The biblical story places you in relationship with a God who refuses to conform to our expectations and yet shows up in surprising ways, requiring your attention and your trust. Our ancestors in faith testify to one who is much nearer than we ever imagine inviting you to rejoice in the discovery of a living God, a living God. On my first Sunday with you after my sabbatical, I was visiting with one of our families after worship, and I learned that as they were getting ready that morning, their child asked them about where Jesus lives, where Jesus lives. Children have a great way of helping us explore our assumptions and practices, don't they? <laughs> I've also had children ask me whether I live here. They're noticing something that prompts deeper questions that maybe you and I might rather not think about or might want to try to avoid. Well, where does Jesus live? Is this building the only place that God is at work? And why am I here so much? I was hoping you would laugh at that. <laughs> because God is beyond us, there's always the temptation to grasp after those things that we can see and that we can control. And yet, because God is also always near us, those devices that we get so obsessed with are never quite adequate for the fullness of a living relationship. God chooses to relate to the world and to you through love. And love cannot be contained in an object or placed exactly where you want it to be or follow your dictates and commands that you order it to do. Love requires relationship beyond yourself, and it also requires risk. It requires risk, church. Love needs the freedom to grow 
and it bestows upon you and upon each person the freedom to be your true and authentic self. And the wonder of love is that when you live in this power, it isn't diminished, but it grows and deepens, transforming individuals, communities, and even the entire world. Jesus told his parable, we're informed, to address the danger of a life turned inward of trust invested only in the self and of contempt for others that erodes the community that God so desires. Where does God dwell? Note that the parable took place in the temple, the very location understood as God's dwelling. And yet the one with the religious credentials, with the answers, with a clearly defined list of godly behavior, was singled out by Jesus as missing the mark. The word righteousness showed up in several places in today's reading, along with its closely related partner, justification. And both have been misunderstood as self-righteousness and self-justification. But both words concern a life that is aligned with God's, that is in harmony with God's desire for a world restored and healed, a world in balance with these gifts that God so freely gives to us. They are words that come alive in relationship to others as God comes to dwell with you in lives transformed by love. It was the one who realized the emptiness and desolation of his inward condition and who yearned for mercy, for grace, for hope, for new life, who went home justified, whose life reflected the living presence of the one whose love breaks into our neatly constructed world and shakes things up and makes us whole. God dwells here as the hierarchies of our world are upended to reveal instead a beloved community aligned with God's dream of a world healed and restored. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul looked back and recognized that through all of the striving, the questions, the hopes and disappointments, that God had been there all along, granting strength and helping the message of love to be shared more completely through the very challenges that vexed Paul the most. How dear to me is your dwelling, wrote the psalmist, inviting you and me to open eyes and open hearts, to look within and around, to join with sparrows and swallows, with mountains and valleys, refreshing springs, 
and pilgrim people to set our sights on God's dwelling place and rejoice in the living God. Amen.